0: And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Show. All
1: right, you guys, introducing Rick Sterling, and he's a journalist from San Francisco, and it's been a little while since he's been on the show, but he's good on lots of stuff. And in this case, he's got some firsthand experience to share with us. Why Zelensky will not take back Crimea, it's called, at antiwar.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Rick?
2: Uh, glad to be with you, Scott.
1: Great. Happy to have you here. So you went to Crimea, as it says here, as uh, with a delegation from the Center for Citizen Initiatives. Tell us first about that before everybody gets all suspicious.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, the Center for Citizen Initiative, um, website ccisf.org. It's an organization that was founded by Sharon Tennyson in the 1980s, and it has been operating since that time, uh, conducting people-to-people delegations, uh, Russians coming to the United States and, and uh, U.S. citizens and people from the West going to Russia. Um, she Sharon had a particular uh, focus on uh, Rotary Clubs, so she tried to link up Rotary Clubs in in north america with rotary clubs in russia
1: and what exactly Uh, is a
2: rotary club it's a little old-fashioned even to me i think exactly exactly so and and then she was also instrumental in oh i'm um, sorry can you describe uh, those
1: a little bit what what
2: is a rotary club rotary club is a business organization um and uh they're kind of i mean they're if they have a business perspective it's uh It's business oriented, but it uh, it
1: seeks to promote, um, you know, goodwill uh, between nations. And they host like even just on the local level, they kind of are a venue for people giving political speeches and stuff like that. Is that right? I've all I've often heard of them, but never really very much, you know.
2: Oh, okay, Right. Well, uh, in fact, my dad was a Rotarian and he was a proud Rotarian. So so that was just something of interest to me. and uh but it it goes far beyond that her delegations um went all over russia um and they went all over the u.s especially in the 1980s uh and the 1990s russians were keen to make contact with americans to learn from um american business practices and um and and so Sharon was a part of that. She received some funding from USAID, um, which was cut off later later in the 1990s. Um, as, you know, toward the end of the, um, uh, well, at the beginning of the Putin period, I think it was cut off. But the one other organization I want to mention that she was helping to promote, to promote was Alcoholics Anonymous. So she did that in Russia, and I have a good friend who, who was a former alcohol, alcoholic himself, who who um, uh, benefited from AA here in the Bay Area. And he went to Russia numerous times and promoted that organization there.
1: That's great. And I've talked to her at least one time on the show and seems like a great lady of goodwill. And she just wants to help people understand each other better, that kind of thing. So her yeah. organization arranged this trip that you were a part of. And mm-hmm. can you just tell us a little bit more about that—the trip itself, and how many people went with you, and and how did you, you know end up in Crimea, of all places, yeah, right it, now? It, yeah, it was a fascinating trip. So this was in
2: 2016. So uh, it was two years after the coup in Kiev, and and two years after uh, Crimea uh, seceded from Ukraine and what they call reunified with Russia. And we can talk more about that later, but. The, the whole trip was about 15 people. There were some um, some people that you probably know. Anne Wright was a part of the delegation, Ray McGovern, David Hartsaw. Um, so some people like that, and then some, some you know, a number of others. Uh, there was about uh, 14 or 15 people on the on the delegation. We spent uh, four or five days in Crimea and that actually was one of the highlights of the trip um it was amazing to see it's, it's very beautiful uh the black sea is uh, wonderful to swim in the people were very happy to see us because at that time they had been under two years of of western sanctions uh visa cards uh, didn't work uh there were all sorts of of uh, us um uh uh sanctions on uh, specifically on Crimea uh they used to have cruise ships that that would arrive at the ports in in Crimea they were no longer landing there so there was economic consequences but there was we talked with a a, a wide range of people there from the elected city councils in um in uh, Simferopol which is the capital of Crimea it's inland um, also we met with numerous uh, elected officials in Yalta and um, Sebastopol, and they were really very, very clear and very happy that they had, um, as I say, rejoined or reunified with with Russia. Uh, so I, was, uh, I didn't know much about Crimea before going there, so I was kind of amazed to learn that Crimea was part of Russia since 1783. Uh, that there's a long history that the people there speak Russian. Uh, so there was, um, you know, if, if you like, we can get into more of the reasons they they uh, uh, decided to secede from from uh, Ukraine. But uh, it was very overwhelming. The election results were 97% voted to reunify with an 83% turnout. Um, we talked with a diverse number of people, a lot of young people. Um, including Tatars, uh, including Armenians, including Ukrainians and, and Russians. Um, it was, you know, it was across the board. They realized this was the best thing for Crimea.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. So. First of all, I'm sorry, because I read it wrong. I thought you just recently went in the middle of all of this. And so I was like, holy crap, man. But then I'm reading this, and now I see that, okay, this is years ago. Right. Now that I'm yeah. listening to you more carefully than I read this in the first place. Uh, right, well... But still a fascinating uh, that, piece, though, and it's still on time, because it's during a it, very controversial time, as you're alluding to right there. This didn't yes. just happen for no reason, but... Right, right. Well, and look, we already know that story. I want to hear more about what was going on there, and and who you met, and what they told you, and those kinds of cool things. One of the
2: interesting things was to meet with some young Tatars, um, and this was uh, Tat, uh, Tatars are are the indigenous group. Uh, they're uh, most of them are Muslim. Uh, they have Turkish, um, kind of a Turkish background. Um, and, uh, so that was an interesting group. Um, there was some, you know, hostility to, toward the Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, some had sided with the, with the Nazis during, during World War II and, and uh, had been expelled on account of it by, by Stalin to Siberia. Uh, but they had been under the Putin administration. They had been uh, the Tatars who wanted to um, go back to um, Crimea uh, uh, were invited to do so and were given some incentives to do so. And so there's um, uh, there's uh, uh, a Tatar community that's always been there, and then there's some, some also that are returning. Um, and that is seen by the West as being a minority group that can be a thorn in the side of Moscow we talked with some very sharp young tatars who were really clear that they that the best thing for them is to be part of russia and they they like the changes that have taken place i remember asking one of them if if uh, and and there's a there was a, a group that engaged in some terrorist action after the after the um uh after the coup and after the uh decision of by Crimeans to to rejoin Russia, there were some terrorist actions. There were electrical uh, uh, power pylons that had uh, that were exploded, and um, the organization that was uh, behind that was uh, it's called the Medulis, uh Group. And uh, they didn't leave any doubt about it. They on the on the uh, the down power pylons they 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 spray painted their logo, so there was no no doubt about that. But so I was curious um what they uh what they thought about melist and what they you know how they how they viewed the situation overall and uh as I was saying they think the best thing is with them with their community as well is with Russia and they they made a specific reference to uh, the Soros money going to through ngos to uh to fund organizations that, um, that have uh, supported the coup in Kiev and supported the um, ultranationalists. So that was kind of I I didn't mention Soros. They brought it up. So and look, afterwards I looked it up and it's um, it's all over the place that Soros uh, I- invested uh, at least two hundred and thirty million dollars in NGO operations in Ukraine.
0: Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book Enough Already Time to End the War on Terrorism is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough Already Time to End the War on Terrorism the Audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code Scott and save $500.
1: Yeah, Kit Glarenberg and others have great write ups on all of that. Yes. And he wasn't even the worst in that one. But uh, so, you Well, also, yeah.
2: I mean, Victoria Newland herself said that the U.S. has spent $5 billion since the early 1990s right. to quote unquote um, promote democracy in Ukraine.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, listen, she can feel the will of the entire Ukrainian people. <laughs> she's, she <knows. laughs> she's such a jam <laughs> yeah man Um, so talk about this bus attack because this was you know I guess here little noticed but obviously was a huge turning point in the yeah, sort of after right. coup uh, situation right. now, now what's going to happen and then this is one of the first things that happened
2: mm-hmm Exactly. Well, the incident, the events in the Maidan, the, the central plaza in Kiev, are hugely important and deserve a lot more um, uh, study. There's a Ukrainian-Canadian professor named Ivan Kachinovsky who's done a very, very detailed examination of what went on there, and specifically the massacre of people which took place, and he's got very, very convincing evidence that it was um the the shootings of both police and protesters was by snipers located in you know, buildings controlled by the uh, insurrectionists by the um by the opposition um anyway and the 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 key po- key date there was February 20 of 2014 and Meanwhile, several hundred people had, had um, uh, taken time out of their work and t- taken time out of their studies and gone by bus from Crimea to Kiev uh, for, you know, several weeks in advance to, to provide an alternative perspective and to protest against the, uh, the violent uh, protests which were taking place in the, in the, in the Maidan Plaza. And they were these were kind of known as the anti-Maidan, uh, since the Maidan protesters would call themselves the Maidan protesters. In any case, um, there were there were uh, several hundred uh, people from Crimea that had had gone there, had taken time out of their their schedules to do that. Uh, when uh, the the climax of the events there was on February twenty. When, when uh, approximately 50 people were killed on the Maidan Plaza, with dozens more injured, and the total number of deads, uh, deaths is is, uh, is near 100. But in any case, the the climax was on February 20. At the end of that day, the people said, "This is this is hopeless. Um, we're trying to peacefully protest." Um, uh here, in support of the government and against the violent protesters, and there's mass killings going on, we need to just um go back. uh we need to go home. The, doing a peaceful protest in this in this environment is is makes no sense. so they they uh uh started on their convoy of eight buses, and they got about a hundred miles south of Kiev on the way back to Crimea and uh then the uh, a roadblock by ultranationalists took place uh they had uh, logs across the road and they were only allowing the uh vehicles that they permitted to pass and they stopped the these buses they were very aware of who was on there any in any case what they did was they terrorized um uh, all the people on the buses they tortured many they killed 7 and um and it was a you know this was a huge shock to the people in Crimea who of course as soon as possible they were the people uh the people uh, communicated with their friends and family back in Crimea uh, what had happened and it, and the news of that um event uh, you know spread very rapidly and that was that was the that w- People that we talked with in Crimea mentioned that as being another decisive reason that they they realized they had no place in this kind of a this kind of a a, of a Ukraine. They had been part of Ukraine. They had voted in elections. They had been participating, and but this was the last straw because there was nothing but hatred and violence being shown by the ultranationalist or neo-Nazi uh, thugs who had uh, had a lot of influence in the in the Maidan and in the uh, the current uh, the the uh, Kiev government that took place uh, uh, just a few days following the February 20.
1: And then so when you talk to not just the ethnic Russian majority, but when you talk to the Tatars and Mm. what other groups did you mention? That you had gone and... Armenian. Oh, an Armenian. When you talked to them, they all agreed that they would way rather be under Russian control than Ukrainian control? Yes.
2: Yes. And
1: now was it like a Soviet commissar that took you on this tour and introduced you to these people? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I I don't think Soviet... (laughs) There's not too many Soviet
2: commissars in the Rotary uh, (laughs) organization. Okay. Uh, So so they weren't
1: uh, all living in Potemkin villages and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: no, no, it, it, we've met a diverse group of people and we we talked with elected um uh officials as well. These are the people who you know are popularly elected. So that we we did meet with some some people from the uh Crimean government, uh the elected city council of Simferopol and uh, elected um uh public servants or or officials in Yalta and Sebastopol. We met with people like that, but we also met with just everyday people. We also talked with um, uh, cultural uh, people who are are uh, most involved in cultural activities. Yeah. All right. High, well... school, high school students, college students. Uh, you know, we met with a diverse range of people. As I was saying, we had about 15 people on the on the uh, delegation. What we did there is we divided up into little groups of two or three and met with all sorts of different people. So uh, to make make the most of our time there, um, I went with uh, my friend, Bob Spies. So he, I'm a, he's a friend now, but I first met him on that trip. And so we, we visited with a, a Armenian uh, culture group um, and other people met with other people, but it was, you know, across the board. And another reason that that uh, the they, uh, the people in Crimea were happy that they had taken that decision two years previously was that Russia uh, was investing a lot in upgrading the infrastructure, uh, which had been neglected. They complained that that uh, Crimea was neglected by Kiev, uh, at, you know, since the breakup of the Soviet Union. And that um, that uh, things were falling apart. There was no um, no investment in in improving the uh, infrastructure, and that even in the short time of two years, uh, Russia had uh, dramatically started improving things. Roads that uh, there was a new airport in uh, Simferopol. There were plans underway for building the Kerch Strait uh, Bridge, which is a very it's just a it's a uh, I think it's fifteen miles. And um, it's a very long bridge uh, that uh, passes across the Kurt, uh, the uh, Kurt Straits of the the uh, from the Black Sea to the Azov Sea. Uh, so they were um, you know, they were they had no regrets.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, and that's no surprise either. But uh, I didn't know that that you had gone there or if we talked about that, my Biden brain had forgotten about it. So I'm really glad that you wrote about this and uh, really appreciate your time on the show. I'm sorry. We're short on time today, but great to talk to you again, Rick.
2: Okay. Yep. Bye-bye.
1: All right, you guys, that's Rick Sterling. He's at antiwar.com with this one. Why Zelensky will not take back Crimea.
0: The Scott Horton show anti-war radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA apsradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.